Welcome to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business success using data. I'm Aaron Norris, Vice President of Market Insights for Property Radar. And with us today, we've got Sean O'Toole, CEO of Property Radar, and John Burns with John Burns Real Estate Consulting. Hey, John. Hey, guys. I- I've got to do the embarrassing bio. It'll be quick and snappy, right. I promise. But uh, John Burns, of course, is with the John Burns Real Estate Consulting, which helps business executives make informed housing uh, industry investment decisions. He is co-author of Big Shifts Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Businesses, one of my favorite demographic books, <laughs> a book written to help uh, make demographic trends easier to understand, quantify, and anticipate. And John has a BA in economics from Stanford University and an MBA from UCLA and works out of Southern California right here in sunny Irvine, California. So, Thank you for joining us today, our fourth show. All right. How did, um, how did you decide to get into the real estate game? Completely accidentally. Uh, I, I, after getting my graduate degree, I went to go work for a consulting firm. I'm there three months. They reorganized my industry. My boss picks real estate. So in 1989, I became a real estate consultant. And, I, and I went and I went to a school with a really well-known real estate program and took no real estate classes. <laughs> there, so. Oh no. Okay. I figured it out later, I think. Okay. Yeah. How long were you there? And when did, when did John Burns real estate consulting start? Uh, you're going to date me here, man. So, uh, so I was there from 89 to 97 and I went out on my own in 2001. Okay. Not yeah. It's 31 years. Wow. Well, who was your first client? What did that look like? Why did you go out on your own? Uh, first client was the Irvine Company. I should have saved the check. It was for all of $1,000. That, that's a heck of a first client, though. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, a joke. I started big, but very small. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I had done a lot of consulting all over real estate, commercial and residential. And I, I really saw the commercial guys were very, very sophisticated about managing themselves through the cycle. And, you know, it's a little easier. You can build a big company with buildings that don't move. When you're a, a home builder and investing in residential, the buildings are changing all the time. And um, it was a little bit more of a cowboy industry. It was all about buying the land, right? It wasn't really about managing the, the cycle. So I, I saw an opportunity to take what the commercial real estate guys were doing and bring it to Resi. Well, you yeah. And your client roster has really changed then over the last several decades then. So who does your clientele look like now? Uh, it started with home builders and developers. Now we have a lot of building products companies. We have a lot of hedge funds. We have a lot of private equity, uh, this whole single family rental trend. We've been at the forefront of that. So I sleep a little better at night knowing that my eggs are a little uh, diversified into multiple baskets. <laughs> Very good. Well, and I know, you know, a lot of what we're trying to focus on is a lot more of the data. And I, I, I always like to hand this to Sean because this is his baby. <laughs> yeah. So before we start diving into, uh, you know, I know everybody's going to be anxious to hear what you think's coming, but uh, we thought we'd cover some other stuff first. Um you know, this is the data-driven real estate podcast. So what what data, you know, I think you guys have a variety of stuff, including surveys and other things. What, what data is important for you and your business um, as you help uh, builders and these other folks, you know, make good decisions? So there's been a huge shift over the 19 years I've been doing this. At first it was, can you go find some data? There was like none. And now there's too much. So it's more, can you filter it down for me? So 
uh, I learned back from one of my mentors, Al Gobar, way back when, that it was all about jobs. Uh, I think it's about more than that now. But I, I, you still have to monitor the job growth really well because that's an adult with an income that can buy your house or rent your property. And that data actually is very, very good data. <laughs> with oh. the exception of the whole COVID period here where all these government programs have made things really messy. Uh, but usually that, that data is, is excellent, comes out every month. Um, you know, you can't get population and other data very reliably. Yeah. So is it mostly that. government or private industry, like folks like ADP and that kind of stuff or both or a mix? Uh, the, no, actually the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, gathers it from the state employment department, California's employment development department. They have two surveys. One is a huge sample size of all the major companies out there. That's what you normally hear quoted. They will miss trends like uh, small startups and things. So um, there's another survey that won the unemployment one where they call people at their house. That that picks up those trends, but it's a smaller sample size. So I, I usually find the right, I look at them both and the right answer is usually somewhere between the two. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I find really interesting every time I look at your reports, right? It's like I'm totally immersed in public records, right? County assessor, county recorder. But you pull in all these other things, you know, population, unemployment, inflation, economics, uh, and all of those, of course, play a really uh, important role. What what percentage of that stuff do you think, you know, you mentioned um, like some of the, the labor stuff is survey based. Um, you know, how much of it is survey based versus real hard data? I mean, like we have employment data getting reported in our payroll reports yeah. regularly. Why isn't that data like available? Why are we looking at surveys? So ADP reports their numbers, but I think they only do 20 million workers or something like that. So, you know, you know who's got all the data is the post office. <laughs> it, it, the post office and the utility companies. And so I've been trying to get it out of them forever. And, you know, somebody sued the utility companies a long time ago for some privacy issue. So that was the answer to your question. Lawyers are the reasons is that uh, we can't get 100% sample sizes. We don't even need to take the census if they would just ask the mailman, is there anybody in the house or not? And how many people are in there? <laughs> he or she knows. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty funny and very true. Um, so, you know, with a lot of that data being survey data, right? The survey that most people are familiar with is is polls, and yeah. obviously the polls got uh, the last election a little bit wrong. And there's already you know people questioning polls for this election. How do you feel, you know, when you're asked about survey data and your reliance on survey data about its, you know? accuracy. And I mean, you can get a statistical margin of error. Um, but, uh, you know, do you feel that relying on survey data puts you at a disadvantage? And is I, there, what are the issues I, there? I try to, again, I say we filter data. So I try to get as much data as I can. And if there's 10 different ways of looking at something and nine of them are all coming to the same conclusion, I get some pretty good confidence in the conclusion. You're, you're, you're right. You need to be very careful about making a conclusion off of one data point. You know, the, I'll pick on the Census Bureau new home sales number, which moves the stock prices every day. Yeah. Uh, every, every time they publish, it's got something like a 16% margin of error. So they might say 
Home sales were up 10% this month when they were actually down six. <laughs> and people are trading on this kind of data. It's just, it's just crazy. But if you've got seven other data points that are triangulating around that 10%, you, you have some confidence it's probably right this time. And that's probably why your clients are, are paying you is to do that triangulation and look at those right. other data points rather than just rely on one thing that has a 16%. Yeah, and that's how we spin it. For less than the cost of a person, you've got 60 of us trying to figure this out for you. So that that's how that works. Yeah. Um, do public records play much of a role for you guys at all? I mean... We'll look at everything, Sean. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah we will get all the public records we can. We're very frustrated. They're not very available in Texas, for example. Yeah. Um, my chief information officer, Steve Dutra, people call the data god. Um, and you're not allowed to hire him. I know you guys are data geeks. <laughs> he's he's just amazing, and and he knows what's right and wrong by metro area of everybody's data, and he's cobbled the whole thing together. He's been with me almost since the beginning. Yeah, no, I definitely know his name, and and you know there there really aren't very many people, and you know, and I'll, uh, you know, I hang my hat as one of them. So, you know, yeah. I'm a little biased here, but there aren't very many people that understand both data science and all the nuances that are in the real estate data set. And, um, you know, I think that's a real shame. I think we made huge mistakes in the crisis coming up to 2008 because, you know, even the Fed didn't understand what they were looking at. Yeah, well, I look back on that as there was some data we just did flat out didn't have. I mean, yeah. we didn't have our data on option arms. We didn't have data on what percentage of loans were actually documenting people's income. Um, you know, now we have some of that data. So that's one of the reasons we have a lot more data now than we did 20 years ago is when problems emerge and you can solve it with data. Uh, I, th I think that gives everyone a lot more confidence in whatever investment they're making. And there's somebody willing to pay for it, right? So I, I remember like, you know, the big, uh, the core logics and the first Americans all went back because they'd already abstracted the loans and they went back through all the loans to abstract the details on the pay option arms. And that was like a brand new hot data set that they were all competing with right. in like 2009. But it didn't exist before that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, and nobody yeah. would have paid him to do it. So, you know, but you didn't, didn't do, do it. it. <laughs> I mean, there's a ton of data still in the recorder's office that I would love to get, but it's just not financially viable for us to go abstract it. And I think a lot of people don't understand that the documents that the recorder get recorded as images, right? It's not, it's pixels, right? So you have to go abstract the information off of those documents and OCR has largely failed to do that in any kind of uh, regular, repeatable way. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a tough thing. One of the things you guys come up with from your, your data is a set of, of indexes. Yeah. And um, are those, uh, is that a pretty important piece of your, your work? I know you've got a couple that I find, you know, pretty interesting. Um, like your housing cycle index, for example? Yeah, so the, the housing cycle risk index is um, something we came up with that uh, it's kind of similar to what Aaron's dad does, which is sitting back and looking at the entire cycle. And when the cycle goes on for a long time, either good or bad, things tend to overcorrect. 
So we, we, we did this a long time ago, maybe 2005. So we, we were calling high risk before it blew up. But, um, you know, when demand gets higher than it usually does, that's a sign that there's very low risk, like job growth is really strong or there's more home buying than usual. Uh, but when supply rises to a very high level to meet that demand and all of a sudden supply is higher than normal, that's a high risk too. Right. And then, uh, then you look at the affordability in, in that market. Uh, people used to compare affordability between each market, but that didn't matter. I mean, LA is always more expensive than Phoenix, but when Phoenix gets more expensive than Phoenix normally is, that's high risk too. So we, we built an index going back to 1981 in every market. We noticed that certain markets that were very supply constrained, like California, were more tied to the affordability Certain markets where you could build as much as you want whenever you want, like Texas, were more supplied to supply, more tied to supply. And we came up with a weighted average that didn't call when the market would turn, but it would tell you when the risks are higher than normal or lower than normal and which way things are trending. Yeah. Yeah. No, super useful report. And it does it not only for, as I remember, like you call out a couple of different things, like, uh, you know, supply supplies and and uh you know of labor and, and other components there too yeah. um, within that so i think there's 25 indicators we looked at yeah, yeah, yeah. a few macro ones like consumer confidence that we you talked about earlier i wanted to ask a little bit about your intrinsic value index this is something that's always fascinated me you know um in fact back in 2008 i kind of said one of the big problems was is that we used you know I mentioned this in, I think, our last podcast, right? The last three morons to say, I'll pay X, right, is how we determine what every piece of property in an area is worth. And, you know, especially like in the Bay Area where you get a company that goes public and you get three people who can just pay whatever, that doesn't then suddenly mean everybody in that area can pay whatever, right? Um, And I was just, I wanted to ask a little bit about that intrinsic value index. Are you looking at kind of like, what the people that currently occupy that area can kind of fundamentally afford? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's the whole buy low, sell high, Warren Buffett, Ben Graham way of looking at things. Uh, so oh, okay. we, have a, we have another index that feeds into this. So it's, ju- it's just our home value index, which, which is basically an ABM. Right. right. It actually, we, we cheat. We get a whole bunch of people's ABMs. Steve knows which ones are best in which market, and we do a weighted average of other people's ABMs. <laughs> yep, yep. But that, that's how we do it. But then um, when a market gets far more expensive in relation to local incomes than it usually does, um, that's when we say it's above its intrinsic value, or when it overcorrects, it's below its intrinsic value. The, the tough thing on that, and I'll pick on Denver, for example, is I believe Denver is a permanently more expensive market than it used to be. So, yeah, there's some subjectivity involved of not just, you know, trading, going back to the median of trying to figure out what the new normal is, if you will. So I'm not going to say that we've got it all solved mathematically. There is some subjectivity in it, but most of our, but when you chart it, you can you you show something to your clients and they go okay I get it and that's more than just a uh, one guy's opinion you know it's got it's got some data behind it and usually it, it usually ties pretty well to some local guy's gut feeling. 
which right. actually that's good data point too. I mean, smart people that are very objective when something doesn't look right to them, I listen carefully. That's good data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a good prior reference back to Bruce and Norris, Aaron's dad. Yeah. Um, uh, Aaron, you wanted to, to talk a little bit about uh, demographics. Obviously, uh, John's and his team's book, the, the Big Shift Ahead a few years ago, I thought was just, you said it was one of your favorite demographics books. It's my only uh, demographics book. So. It's his only two, but he didn't admit that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, totally a true story, but... Uh... I, I had to end up buying it again last night because I keep on giving away my copies and I oh, the price you. and people are like, how have you not read this? <laughs> Especially <laughs> markets like California that are so cyclical and it's uh, yeah. when the ups are ups, they're great. When they're down, man, you want to get out of Dodge. Um, and I'm very visual as well. So um, what was the genesis of Big Shifts Ahead? It, it's 2016. So for, you know, almost. Yeah, it needs a refresh. Although some of the framework in there is, is, helping me a lot right now. So the, the genesis of that was here we come out of the Great Recession and housing ain't booming. And everyone's got one millennial excuse after another. And uh, I'm like, well, I think we can figure this out data-wise. So it started as a small research project that turned into a 9,000-hour research project <laughs> 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 with three really smart interns, all of whom work for me full-time now. So that, that, that worked out really well for that reason. Um, but, uh, I, I just said, we can make sense of this. And when we got into it, we said, let's break everything down to decade born. Cause then you're comparing 10 year periods to 10 year periods. Everybody knows what year they were born and it just made it all more understandable. Uh, just that's putting it lightly. So, you know, baby boomers into the baby boomers, gen X, gen Y, and then breaking it into 10 year cycles. It just seems a lot more sensical when it comes to trade to, identify trends in a segment. Um, uh, One of my favorite words out of the book is Serban. Can you uh, describe what that means? Yeah, we made that up. Uh, It's it's when, and I I think the world is trending away from that right now too. So it was uh, bringing the best of urban to the suburbs. So urban, actually due to a lot of local government investment, really got cleaned up a lot in the 90s and 2000s. And, and all, you know, everyone knows how great New York and San Francisco and other places have been recently. Um, they were not that way 30 years ago. And uh, then they became really cool and hip. And the suburbs said, we want some of that in our city. And so they started zoning higher density, you know, not high rises, but uh, 20 to the acre detached housing or, or, or um, even attached, but you can do detached at that right next to retail. And so we called it, it Serban. And that, that was really the hot thing until COVID hit. So you, I, you know what, I guess I thought Serban would be survive well. So you think that's a trend that the Serban is just too dense? No, I, well, I think, um, I shouldn't say can you, can I shouldn't, those dense aspects. Well, I still think it will continue. Uh, w- one thing that surprised me and was very different in this last cycle was that it used to be people would go to the suburbs and then the jobs would migrate to the suburbs because that's where the people were and you kind of get sprawled that way. In, in this cycle, it was like everybody went downtown, including the jobs. And so 
I can't afford a house in this great location unless I get a really dense one. And so uh, what has now shifted, I believe, is this whole proof that work from home works for a lot of people. Uh, we're seeing it. It's, people are fleeing. It's not an urban flight as much as it is. I can now live 60 minutes away. Frankly, I can now live in another state. I've been given permission by my boss to do so. Uh, we can go back to where I grew up. Um, it's a flight to more affordable housing, uh, which wasn't which wasn't there because the affordable housing was so far away. You couldn't physically commute <laughs> uh, from what, there to work. What portion of that do you think is more affordable versus more desirable? Do you think that they're just going for cheaper? and they don't like it as much? Or do you think they're going also to something that they prefer? Um, I think there's some of both. But I think the big, I think the big difference is um, affordability. Even, even if it's an expensive home, I can get so much more than I could somewhere close to LA or San Francisco or close to even Scottsdale. Now I can go out to West Phoenix and I guess I guess that would be a, a preference. The quality of life changed too. When I, I had a friend that moved from the Inland Empire up to the Bay Area, uh, worked in uh, Union Square, and bought a home two hours outside, and was making the drive back and forth every day to work. So four hours out of his life. It's just yeah. really hard to imagine the quality of life shift when all of a sudden you get four hours of your day back. <laughs> so his his neighborhood right now, the housing market is on fire. Right. Because everybody is joining him. <laughs> How, did the Big Shifts Ahead book really change what you were offering clients or was the demographic conversation always an overlay on what you were covering? No, it was, it was super clarity behind all the discussions that were going on in my clients about making big investments in demographic trends. Uh, you know, it was usually based on somebody's gut feel. In fact, usually it was based on something going on with their son or young son or daughter, you know, and their friends. I'm like that, you know, that's, that's cool. But you guys do realize that you're skewed because you make a lot of money. That's not the whole world. Um, and so we went and figured out what was going on with everybody. And it, 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 it's become a big part of our reporting. It's a, I also am a big fan of your podcast. Uh, guys do a great job. And I, I love the term, the jewel box. So as you're sort of di dissecting the trends in the different age groups, um, I, my father, Bruce Norris, is moving to Florida. It's now been made public and uh, he's moving to a jewel box. He's downsizing outside of California, moving to Florida. And that's specifically what he's looking at. So a jewel box, can you describe what that is? Uh it's just a really cute, small place that makes me really happy and is very low maintenance. And well-appointed, is that fair? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, you, you, the price per square foot on these things can be really high, but the absolute price can be relatively reasonable because there's not that much square footage. You know, and your, your dad doesn't have five people he has to live with. He just by, by himself, I guess so. That has not stopped him from buying really big houses for two people. So I'm excited to see him downsize a little bit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, he's just to see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, he's going to 3,500 square feet. <laughs> Tiny. Uh, is that the jewel box? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> the, I was going to ask something about the California Association of Realtors. Um, they were releasing information about new builds and it escaped me. Maybe I'll come back to it. Um, 
Are, is there going to be an update on big shifts ahead? Is there is it bigger shifts ahead? Is it coming soon? Uh, we talked about it, but it hasn't hit the top of the priority list. Is there anything that hasn't worked out like you thought it would? I mean, COVID being maybe Serban, we'll see if yeah. that sticks or goes away, but is there anything else? Uh, I'm pretty proud of everything we forecast in that book, except the one massive miss, which everybody told me I was wrong, um, and they were right, was that we were calling for falling home ownership. Um, they were right for the wrong reasons, and I was wrong for, for a different reason. I really did not think we would continue to see falling interest rates in, for year after year after year. And I thought the, the documentation did get horrendous on the mortgage, but I thought things would tighten up more than they did. And actually, FHA went, we'll take all that subprime market share. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit because they are documenting everything. But the, the bottom line is the government played a very aggressive role growing home ownership. And so we missed and the falling rate. So we, we got that one wrong. And now it's going to look really wrong because I, I think home ownership is taking off right now. Because yeah. we covered that last week, didn't we, Sean, about the different kinds of demand, people getting divorced and forced yeah. health creation? <laughs> yeah. So are divorces on the rise? Uh, you know, don't know that yet. It's just it's pure speculation. We, we kind of walk through, like, what are some of the things we see, you know, coming out of this? And we're going to dive into COVID in a bit. But, you know, just the, the idea that people have spent a lot of time in a house yeah. that they haven't spent time in before and are probably realizing it's not the right house. And they spend a lot of time with a person that they probably haven't spent quite that much time with before, even if they've been married for a while. Uh, so <laughs> I actually, have, I actually have some data related to this. So we, we had the same question. So my guys have figured out how to use Google Analytics um, to check all sorts of trends. And the uh, trends on a divorce attorneys are up. But, okay. they're, but they're they're not up substantially. So we also checked uh, pregnancy and uh, some of the indicators were up and some of them were down. So we, we said well, the jury is out on that one. Uh, but it looks like divorces are trending up in China. Apparently, they spiked the day they opened. So that's what made me think. <laughs> <laughs> wow. OK, that's awesome. That's uh, that's good stuff. And yeah, Google Analytics and, and the, the you know, they're. Yeah, them telling you how much things are searched on is super useful for that. That's that was smart um, on your part. But the last, I remember what the data point was. The California Association of Realtors does their, I think they've, the last time they did it was 2015, but it was the impact report where they look at buyers, sellers, and investors. And they broke down this time by demographic, uh, buying trends in the new, I don't know if it was resale or news space, but what was surprising to me is that millennials, because they had waited, the homes that they were going into were higher priced uh, in some points up to the boomer levels. So it's like they skipped the whole affordable housing. They're like, nope, we're just going to bury ourselves for 20 years in something uh, more expensive. Yeah. So as, as you know, we, we broke it into decade born. So we, the, night, the group born in the 1980s, we call them the sharers because they developed the sharing economy, uh, have the highest college education ever by far. So they've got more dual income than ever before, and they're waiting to 32 to make their first purchase. So if you just think about those two things, you're going to see, particularly here in California, people can afford very expensive homes because there's two college-educated people that have 10 years of experience chipping in to purchase the house. That's never happened before. 
Okay. That would make sense. Yeah. All right. Builders. Builders. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously they're your, your primary client and it still feels to me like part of what drive is driving this market, at least in California. And I don't know, we're, we're expanding nationally. So we're starting to get data on the rest of the nation, but I'm, you know, I still know California best and Arizona and the places we cover today. Um, so what, what's, you know, what's builder's sentiment like? Why haven't we seen a bigger ramp in supply over the last handful of years? Maybe start there. Um, have you been to a city council meeting lately? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard to get your land entitled. In fact, I would say during this cycle, the land developers who got in at the bottom of the market and have sold recently have done fine, but they're now saying, boy, I completely timed the market perfectly and I just did fine. Am I going to go out and buy some more land and try this all over again? No. Not and, a chance. And frankly, that, that's been the conversation probably for the last four years. So really everybody's been, I'm not going to make the big long-term bet, uh, put a ton of capital in, get messed around by the city and the Army Corps of Engineers and the NIMBYs and everybody else. And I, I had a, a client of the city one day decided that he wanted, they wanted a bridge built to highway standards instead of just normal standards. So that cost him several million dollars. That's the type of stuff that makes developers pull their hair out. So um, the, the capital doesn't think the uh, risk reward is really there in a big way. And so the, the builders, um, you know, development is different than building. Some of them will go out and do some of that for their own account. But what right. they, they will try to do is they will try up the land, tie up the land under an option agreement until they get all the entitlements through and they understand the costs before they'll go ahead and purchase the land. Still significant risk in that, right? Because they got to oh, yeah. do all the studies and all the rest. I mean, it's oh, yeah. hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to get to the point where you know whether you've got a deal or not. Right. And if the market turns on you, you're going to own that thing for a decade. So it's very illiquid. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so builder sentiment, though, today is, hey, we feel really good if we can get the math to work. Is that kind of where it, it stands and just getting the math to work super hard right now? Um, I, I use the term cautiously jubilant. <laughs> so so Ju June was actually the highest sales rate per community since probably 2005. Five, yeah. Yeah, so um, they just killed it. Uh, but they, you know, they're, they're not running around saying, I think this is going to go on for years. I think it's going to go on for the rest of the summer and maybe the rest of the year. So I'm jubilant about what's going on. I've got my balance sheet in great shape. I'm making a lot of money and doing really well. But once again, I'm not going to go make a five-year bet on the housing market right now that's being driven by sub-3% mortgage rates during, a, during the greatest job loss in, in my lifetime. Yeah, it's a very, very strange mix of, uh, of numbers for sure. Um, how much, so we talked about, you know, one of the big problems is how difficult it is to get something entitled, right? Um, I guess really more on the development side. Um, and what about, what about like materials? We've got all these, you know, trade war things going on and the rest and, 
Um, what about just, you know, cost of lumber and, and uh, granite and all those things that go into building a house? Is that causing your builders much consternation? The trade wars really hit them at all? Uh, surprising. So I have two guys that pay attention to that, Steve Baston and Todd Tomalak. They do our building products consulting, which has become a big part of our business. And it varies a lot by product. Uh, the builders are very wise and they figured out pretty early that this particular countertop was probably not going to be coming from Italy. So we're going to have to go get one somewhere else. And this, and one of them I heard like tied up six months worth of cabinets just to make sure he had the cabinet. So uh, the, the big home builders have done okay, but you, you go into Home Depot. In fact, I went into Home Depot two weeks ago and there was a sign right at the doors like we have some supply shortages. <laughs> I'd never seen that before. Uh, so it varies by company. And initially, I think it was international. Now I'm hearing it's more domestic because somebody had to shut down because a worker got sick. So, right. yeah, okay, that makes uh, that makes sense. Um, are you seeing? Are there? I mean, uh, we all know how bad it is to get something entitled in California. You know, kind of best states, worst states. What you know, as you look around the country. Are there places where, hey, we can just build whatever we want and like there's no regulation, just go? You know, you used to say that about Houston, but we joke that so many Californians have left Houston. Some of them are city planners. <laughs> so, so, so now it's worse than it used to be pretty much everywhere, but I would say Houston is much easier to get things done. Right. Among the major cities, clearly rural areas, some places you don't need a permit at all. Right. And, you know, and I guess with that, like speaking of Houston, right, the whole oil market being decimated, right? You, you guys have to look at those kind of local economic factors as well. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I was born and raised in California and everybody wants to bag on California, but it's one of the strongest economies and one of the most diverse economies in the world. You know, you take someplace like Houston that's so oil dependent, that always seemed to me to be much higher risk. And all my California friends going there to invest. And I'm like, God, isn't it kind of a one-trick pony? And, and, and I don't know if that's fair. I'm asking. You know, it, it was in the 80s. It's less so now. It's actually got a huge healthcare presence. Not that that's not doing well either. Uh, but, but David Jarvis, who runs our Houston office, is part of the Greater Houston Economic Partnership. And so he stays on top of a lot of it for us. And actually, Houston is doing great, both on the rents. The rents, rents are pretty soft. But um, they're doing better than I would have thought on rentals, and they're killing it on home sales at all price points. Wow! Okay. And, uh, one of the one of the trick the data things we do that you've probably seen me present before is that every quarter we go to U-Haul's website and price out renting a truck from one city to the like from LA to Houston and then back should be the same price if you have the same flow of people, right? Same truck, same distance. Uh, we are still seeing in migration into Houston right now, despite the twenty strong in migration, despite the twenty dollar oil price, and I think that is overcoming the local distress right now. Yeah, um, and demographics plays a big role too, right? Like, so you know, Florida has a you know a definitely an aging population, and and with the salt tax stuff, we saw a lot of people escape New York and places like that for for Florida, but it kind of felt to me like 
boy, that's got to be reaching an end where like the future outlook isn't very positive there. Bruce and Aaron came to a very different conclusion that, that uh, you know, they see uh, Florida as a good long-term uh, location. But I mean, doesn't that kind of bubble burst at some point as these, as the baby boomers start to die? <laughs> Not to put it too bluntly. Well, there's multiple Floridas. So if you go down the Southwest coast in Naples where it's all retirement, um, I mean, at some day it'll soften, but the peak birth was what, 1961. So that's only 59 years old. So there's, there's quite some runway there. You go up to, I know where, where Bruce was investing between Tampa and Orlando. I mean, Tampa is like America's back office. It's like a little mini Atlanta. If you ask me, it's not a retirement area at all. And Orlando is all about Disney World and tourism. So right. there's very different stories here in, in that state. Right. Okay. And then you go up uh, further north. So, so I mean, at the end of the day, these things get very local. And, and that, you know, I, I know you guys, one of the, I, I would imagine one of your biggest products is the feasibility studies where you come in and help uh, builders not only understand what that current market's like, but what's the best product to build and the rest. Yeah, no, we, we love doing that. And, um, you know, before we started doing it, they really were just guessing like the price, the, the house down the street is at this price. It's kind of like your appraisal thing. We found three people who bought it. So if we build it, we'll find three more. Right. <laughs> the right. Same. Um, there's actually tools now, some of which are actually inside property radar. So you need to roll it out the rest of the country to, to really understand who the buyers are and what they're looking for. And we've been doing focus groups uh, now, which the trick there with is, is turning all that information into something useful. A lot of times focus groups are just big, huge printouts of reports and you don't know what to do with them. Yeah. Uh, but, but our clients, particularly our rental clients, more than our for sale clients are really using it to put in the amenities to figure out the mix of one bedroom, two bedroom. Uh, I think the one bath stuff is pretty much dead right now. Everybody wants the one and a half or more. Uh, you, you just, you got to learn that stuff if you're going to compete. And you just do uh, apartments and the multifamily as well as the single family yeah, as well too, right? So that, that's a big part of, of that. What do you, with, you know, kind of the issues around density and stuff, do you see a pullback on the apartment side? Do you see differences in what's happening in single family versus apartment? Huge, huge differences. So if, if home ownership is rising, that's got to come from somewhere, right? Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's coming from apartments. Okay. And, uh, we, we are right in the middle of finishing construction on a 33-year high of apartment construction. So you wipe out the jobs, you don't, so you wipe out the demand, you add to the supply, that's a pretty ugly mix. Yeah. We're very, very bearish on apartments over the short term here. But I will say uh, you can look at the demand and supply all you want, but in the apartment world, it, it matters how much money is out there and what they're looking to do. And there seems to be a lot of capital that's willing to overlook 2020 and 2021 and just say, give me some long-term yield by, backed by an asset in the United States, and I'll take it. So it's uh, the vacancy here may get pretty ugly, but I don't think the prices are going to get really cheap because of the demand from capital. Right, right. Wow. Interesting. 
Do you see, do you see any of these apartments like, you know, as people want to own their own place, do they condominiumize? Uh, the condo conversion has yeah. never really worked out. Um, so let me say it another way. So the, it really is about the design of the unit. Yeah. If you really take a unit that was designed as a rental, it's really not designed to for homeowners. It's usually smaller, maybe doesn't have that extra half bath, some of that other stuff. So some of the apartments this cycle were were actually old condos that were converted that they built as apartments. I think those could convert back to for sale condos uh, because they're bigger and larger and they were initially designed that way. I actually uh, I met an investor one time and that's all he did was play the cycles. He would buy apartments and turn them into condos and then buy them back as condos and turn it back into an apartment and kind of play the cycle that way. But that was pretty interesting. Older guy and had been kind of, yeah, gone through it a couple of times. So it was an interesting, uh, interesting uh, take on, on things. Um, what's top of mind for builders right now? Uh government policy yeah so in big shifts ahead we we came up with this thing called the four five six rule because we, we studied all this demographic history and every big shift was caused by some sort of government policy like the gi bill would be a significant example of that um yeah the economy obviously which we're talking about um, new technologies which enabled certain things to happen and and actually this this whole single family rental business that has exploded into institutional ownership has been enabled by new technologies that didn't exist before. And then societal shifts and the societal shift to being able to work from home right now is something that we know is massive. I don't know how massive it is, but uh, the anecdotes that we're getting from that are just unbelievable. I mean, personal and, and all of our clients too, uh, you have builders like switching midstream and like changing the bonus room into like his and her offices and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you take the bedroom, you pull out the closet and you merchandise it as a great office. Uh, I mean, you can do that right now. Uh, the biggest shift that they're doing is they're now buying land a little further out because they see the demand there. And that's why I was saying the serpent has got to trend down. They were buying the higher density stuff closer in, which was really expensive and paying a premium for it. And now they're saying, oh, I can, now it's back to where it was 20 years ago. I can go out further out and, and do a homes on a 7,000 square foot lot that are less expensive to build. There's generally fewer NIMBYs too, and there's tons of demand right now. Yeah, okay, good. Well, I think we probably, uh, I know everybody is uh, curious to talk more about COVID and uh, market uh, forecast kind of stuff, which I know you guys just finished a big report. Um, I'm not sure which report you're referring to. We do big reports all the time. Yeah, the, <laughs> the one I'm looking well, at, that the one, your page. It's so like 360 pages. Uh. <laughs> so I, I hate to say that, but we produce that every single month for our clients. So it's wow and uh so that's all the national data we can get our arms on uh i don't print it out like you guys did my clients look at it on the computer or, or um, oh i wouldn't print it it was too big yeah. aaron's got to print out oh uh, my gosh and then we do 73 pages on every metro area too so that's 
that's what I meant. We went from go find the data to now there's too much of it, but we, we, we collect it all because it's all something I want to learn from. Yeah. So, um, you know, how has COVID-19, like just big picture netted out for us, how has it changed your forecast for that you're, you know, what, how has it changed what you're telling builders in the last, you know, 90 days here? So, uh, we have been saying because of the housing cycle risk index and some of the things in that big, huge report about how much leverage was in the system that we were in a high risk part of the cycle that was going to feel more like 2000, 2001, most likely than 2008, 2009, because we're 10 to 12 years after the Great Recession. Back then, we were 10 to 12 years after the SNL debacle, which SNL was all the capital for housing. So there were a lot of, and so we weren't overbuilt. The industry was very disciplined. We were documenting the mortgages, and we figured the next recession rates would probably fall like what happened in 2001, and we'd slide through it. So when this all went down, we said, we think that's what's going to happen. We think it'll be a little worse given the job losses that we're seeing. Uh, we actually suspended our forecast for three months from March through the, the end of June and uh, got a lot of new data and then came out with a, a forecast for us, I call slight down. We just revised it to a slight up uh, because, because the evidence that we're getting that uh, mortgage rates are most likely to stay sub three for a long time, that government, you know, Democrat or Republican is going to continue to throw more money at this, that the FHFA has tools in place to try to foreclose on as few as people as possible. Uh, you know, I never thought that they would pay my payroll for two months, but they did that. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of all in to help us out. Um, and, and then you lock everybody in their house with all their family and everybody's focused on the house. They can't spend money on a vacation. All of that's making me crazy to think that I'm going to be calling for okay times when we have 11% unemployment. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a nutty uh, set of factors. And, you know, definitely. Let me give you one data point on that that our chief demographer pointed out. Most of that unemployment, people have checked the box that they're temporary unemployed, the vast majority of that. And I didn't even know that box existed. Um, so I, I want to say, like, I think we've, we've grown, we've added almost 3 million permanently employed people, but something like 20 million temporary employed. So if you just look at the total number, it's, um, it makes you sick. I mean, 3 million makes you sick, too. Uh, but um, this doesn't appear to be the Great Recession all over again, at least in terms of unemployment. One of the, and I know this isn't, you know, there's lots of folks really hurting, you know, so I don't want to minimize that at all. But um, the, I have quite a few small business friends that are having a really hard time getting their folks to work because of the $600 bonus, uh, you know, it's $15 an hour on top of unemployment. And if they're paying that employee even 20 bucks an hour, right, they, they don't want to come back to work because they'll actually get less money than they will staying on unemployment. And it puts the small business in this quandary where they can report that employee and, um, 
you know, and that employee will lose that unemployment and kind of force them back to work. But that employee will then also hate them forever, right. which isn't what you want having coming back to work. Yeah. So they're not reporting them and kind of surviving with less people. And, you know, and that's anecdotal. And I'm in, a, in an area that's economically pretty strong. A lot of people are coming here to shelter. And I don't know how true that is. What, what, what are you seeing in that kind of larger job market and the impact of the unemployment? It, it ends this Friday. What do, what do you see in there? Yeah, so we figured out that 64% of America could make more money on today's unemployment program than they're currently making. So they, I mean, they talk about the government going all in, but you're right, it ends this week. And so they're going to come back. I don't think they're going to come back with zero, but they're probably not going to come back with 600 too. And I, I think they're going to try to solve the that issue. Try to make it where there's still some incentive to go back to work, but also not leave people where they can't pay their rent. Yeah, but part of that is they didn't want somebody to be forced back to work to make money and expose themselves to getting sick. So, I mean, this is why I'm so glad I don't set policy for a living. I can't imagine yeah. lives like that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point too because there's definitely, especially if you're in a high-risk family or you've got older folks at home that you're coming back home to, right? And that's where we're seeing locally, that's where we're seeing most of our spread is multi-generational Mm -hmm. uh, families and the kids have to go to work and they bring something home and the folks are, you know, the parents are getting sick. Right. Um, so yeah, bringing that back to housing. So if you're living multi-generationally in a house, that's a little too small and pretty old and you have a sub 3% mortgage rate and you're still confident you're going to keep your job, you're moving. And then yeah, you're, moving, I, you're looking, <laughs> you may be even separating and saying, Hey, let's, let's be in separate households. This doesn't make sense. You could do that too. That's right. Do you yeah. have to know how much uh, the mortgage market is controlled by the federal government? I, I, I'm going to get the percentage wrong, so I'm not going to quote it. It's more than half. It's more than half. And uh, what are some of the tools? I, I don't know this. I know there's a lot of different things that are not new. They rolled it out during the downturn. As far as the stuff that's not federally controlled, I know here in the hard money loan space, there's not much, you know, the government's not sweeping in to help private lenders, but... Uh, for the non-qualified mortgage mortgages out there, the private, the independent banks, who's coming to their rescue? Nobody. I mean, not non-QM was two percent of the mortgage market, though. Okay. And, and non-QM, usually, you know, probably half of those people have some sort of issues that make them high risk. The other half just don't have the documentation for one reason or another. So I, I feel sorry for them, but that's not going to move the overall housing market. Do you think uh, do you see foreclosures being an issue for either residential or commercial in the next couple of years? Oh, commercial is going to be a disaster. Uh, but I, I do th- I do think the government learned their lesson in the last cycle that if we just foreclose on everybody, we basically drive prices down on our next foreclosure. <laughs> yeah. So everybody loses money, and so Calabria at least on the residential side and even on the apartment side, he said like we're going to work with you guys. Uh, because it's in our best interest as the lender, your best interest as the owner, and in the best interest of the tenant or homeowner that we try to figure this out. I still think we're going to see foreclosures for those homeowners who maybe just can't get their act together. Um, But you know they had their act together when they bought the house because the documentation was impeccable. Yeah. 
And, and I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I hate to say it, but to some degree, you have to have some foreclosures. Otherwise, people just stop making their payments and won't again, right? So right. There, there, a little bit of it at least has to happen as a, uh, as a dissuasion tool, I guess. So let's, you, you mentioned commercial is going to be a disaster. Let's break that out because there's a lot of different sectors of commercial, right? Retail, um, industrial, distribution, different things. What, what, where you think, where do you think it's going to be worst hit and, and least hit and, and that? Well, re- retail was already struggling going into this. So now I hear there's a lot of centers where they're collecting 20 to 30% of the rent that does not pay the mortgage. So uh, and I think we're just this latest round of closures is going to be the death knell for places that could have survived a two month closure that now can't. Mm-hmm. So somebody's got a loan on all those that has got to be worked out. And the loan loss reserves that the big banks just reported this last quarter were massive. And that's a that that is a big, big, huge problem that needs to get solved. And that's retail. Office is is very interesting. So with this whole work from home, yeah, we don't need as much space. A lot of companies are saying we don't need much at all. Uh, but in those areas, particularly like the Manhattan's of the world, where everybody was working elbow to elbow, you can't do that anymore. But when they come back, maybe they'll be in, back in offices again. So maybe half as many people come back, but you'll need as much space. So. Um, I, I think we're going to see some pretty significant office vacancy here for a while. But then again, does the lender want to own the building or are they just going to work with the owner to help them through? Lesson learned in the past is you're better off working with the owner if the, if the regulator, the Fed, will let you. And I'm, I'm going to bet on the Fed this time that yeah. they don't want to own buildings. Yeah. No, I think they learned that after SNL. Like, I mean, we definitely saw a difference in 2008 where they just worked through most of it right? versus, you know, they didn't want to take back the dirt. They don't want to have the dirty dirt issues either, right? Especially on the office, that really isn't so much a problem, but certainly, you know, any of the other places where you have gas stations or industrial or paint booths and and, and all of that. So it seems like distribution is probably booming. <laughs> yeah, like I, the, I would love to own some warehouse right now. It's the, it's the new retail. I mean, that's, yeah. what, that's everything you're ordering online is in an industrial building somewhere. So, I know uh, Amazon has been targeting malls because they're so well located in cities, but I'm, I'm hoping that the malls decide to diversify into residential, senior housing, hotels, re- other kinds of... Uh, well, they, they, that was going on already. One of my clients, Brookfield, has 165 malls that they got out of the GGP bankruptcy. And, uh, you know, they, they shared with us at our conference in no, November that there's a lot of areas of the parking lot already that is not being used. So you could actually do an apartment complex on the uh, already. Uh, and yeah. th- those tend to be primo locations. That, that was always my take. Everybody was like, oh, malls are going to get killed. And I'm like, malls have some of the best locations in the United right. States. And, you know, you could do so much in those locations. And, and they're large. They're large pieces of dirt that, you know, are already zoned for quite a bit of density and have good traffic egress and ingress. They seem like just awesome locations. Yeah. People keep thinking about the structure of the facility. It's actually the parking area that's <laughs> easiest to develop into residential. Yeah, missing those three-story JC Penneys and Macy's and right. Forever Twenty Ones. 
Well, you know, those buildings are fully depreciated, right? They've been around for so long. There's no value really left in the buildings. We just scrape them. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we, we look at that. We look at the, it's interesting how we look at the value. I'd love your take on this, John, right? Like, so in Japan, like, you know, so, so the rules actually say like the building depreciates over the time to zero, right? That's the, the tax tax rules. But yet we still pay a lot for buildings that are really old and crappy rather than tearing them down. In Japan, my understanding is that, you know, hey, after 20 years, I tear this one down and build something new that's cool and modern. And like, why the heck aren't we doing that? Wouldn't that just be awesome for the economy and, and all the rest? They're already entitled. And why do we keep living in these shit boxes from the so far ago? There's so many of them here in, in Tahoe because they all got built around the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, there's no repair and remodel business in Japan either. They basically don't spend any money on the house either until it's ready to tear down. I, I understand there's some cultural issues about you really don't want to live in somebody else's house. So there's there's not a real active resale market there for, for cultural issues. Everybody would like to live in a new space. Wow. Well, that's interesting. And it's interesting to me how they can, you know, how they've made that work economically right because it's you know um well they they do factory built housing there uh, one of one of my clients sekasui uh does that they'll tear down and they'll buy an old building tear it down put four new ones on there and uh made in a factory and they've, they've got it i think they do fifty thousand of them a year so it's a it's a machine that um, just does it over and over and over again. And there they're like, I'd rather have it built in a factory because I know it was built right and the angles are 90 degrees as opposed to the way we do it here. Why aren't we, why aren't we building houses in factories here? Well, you're going to have to have a whole nother hour long podcast for that. <laughs> well, what could have you back? <laughs> I would say the primary reason would be local zoning. The zoning is different in every single city. Uh, we had the benefit of low-cost labor coming from south of the border that Japan never had too, and uh, the in, the industry here has also been so cyclical. Factories are big investments, so you yeah. you, you want to build a thirty forty million dollar factory and then have the housing market turn on you. <laughs> so I think it's a combination of all those things. Okay, good. Do you see the. Uh, public builders getting into the built-to-rent space, sort of diversifying their own portfolios? So did you know that we have a conference on that tomorrow? Your team, me up here. I, I didn't. Oh, okay. I didn't know. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but actually, this won't be tomorrow because this is airing later, right? <laughs> uh, it, uh, this is putting out Thursday. So yeah, we'll miss it by a day. <laughs> we, we could tweet about it or like let people know if, you, if you're looking for more signups. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're full, actually. So, uh, yeah, I bet. It's, it's kind of hard to say you're full online, but we actually are trying, <laughs> break, we're trying breakout rooms as part of this to, to bring back some networking. Oh, so cool. Our six breakout rooms are full. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that has become a third of our consulting business is built for rent. It is. Wow. Everybody is building it. Well, I should say everybody is planning on building it. There's actually not that much of it under construction right now. And build for rent that's not apartments, like single family or like townhomes or what are they building for rent? It's, um, yeah, so the, I'm actually, that's the opening part of my presentation is trying to clarify that. So there, okay. there, there really is contiguous communities that we really should just start calling them apartments. They're, they're, they just, 
half of them are detached and the other half are attached, but more like row towns, more single level or some two level row towns. Uh, and then there's another component of it where, um, you know, builders are just selling six of the homes in my community to this guy and another five to that guy. So that's, that's more to the, the scattered home guys like the uh, American homes for rent, if you will, who would be buying those. Right. Okay. Great. It's uh, but none of this was feasible before all this technology that allowed guys to figure out how to do this. Right. Well, we are up about on that hour mark. Um, I wanted to bring up the single family rental index. Uh, if people were interested in finding out how to participate and who you're looking for. Yeah. So again, I mean, where there's a hole in the market, we're trying to get data on it. So uh, the single family rental data is not that great because if I decide to rent my house to you, how does anybody know what the rent was and whether or not I gave you some concessions? So uh, we're, we're trying to get better trend data. So we're, we're doing a quarterly survey. We partnered with the National Rental Housing Council. So we've got the big boys in there too. And Anybody who participates in that will give you back the survey results. Plus, I think we're given some of our forecast data too. And that's well, we definitely have a lot of single family rent landlords. So we'd love to get them participating. And I'm sure they'd love to have access to the data. Yeah. Is so there a threshold? All we're asking is, and we don't say who, but you know, just tell us some stats about what you've seen going on in the market. Just a few questions and then we'll return to you everybody else's results. How many properties in an MSA would you like them to have? Uh, you'd have, I think it's five. I knew the answer before I asked it. <laughs> uh, Devin, Devin tells me five. And what I'll do is I will post links in everywhere where we're producing the show so people can find out how to get involved and to email you. Yeah, so all a, of our, our landlord folks listening, if you have more than five units, I, I suggest you take advantage of this because I, I do this actually for a software company. I you know, put in my data into some of these uh, surveys and then I get back the results and I can benchmark my company against all the other companies. And it's, it's super useful. It's, it's something I do regularly. Yeah. We only ask a few questions and uh, Devin's email is dbachman, B-A-C-H-M-A-N at realestateconsulting.com. I was going to say for more information, um, is that where you'd like people to go to realestateconsulting.com? Yes, please. Yeah, there's great blogs. You have links to the the new Home Insights podcast, Real Estate Investors. It's one of my favorite places to go to to hear what builders are doing, trends in different demographic spaces. So as you're rehabbing homes, put this stuff out for free. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, anybody, I mean, even, I mean, yeah, just the podcast and the other things, I think it's something that realtors, real estate investors, our mortgage folks and all the rest should be listening to and and paying attention to. I realize they're not your primary customer, but they may know some of your customers and they can send them as well. So, well, you know, more importantly for me, they've got Intel in the market I don't have. So, uh, you know, we, we like to swap some free stuff for some Intel. Awesome. Awesome. Good stuff. John, awesome. This was uh, this was really good. Hour went fast. Lots of really, really good stuff. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Show. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that join the community and you'll be forwarded to our community where you can even ask questions for upcoming guests, ask questions of current guests. We monitor there and we'd love to engage with you. Uh, please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on any of your favorite platforms. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.